Our scripture reading today is Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. That can be found on your pew Bible on page 871. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is this the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as smallest thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown to the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, or the treasure in the heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, the word of Christ, the word that's able to make us wise unto salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that as the word is preached today, it would be to these hearers as the very words of Christ. And I pray that we'd respond to the word of Christ with repentance and faith. Give us grace to submit to the scriptures, to listen to them, to heed them and to obey them, to sit under them. We pray that you would be my helper by your Holy Spirit. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you ever got this line when you were little? Stop crying 
or I'll give you something to cry about. I was thinking back on my childhood this week, and I think that particular approach to get me to stop crying worked 0% of the time. It turns out that just yelling to a child, stop crying in a loud voice as you tower over them, isn't super effective. But there are some other greatest hits, not just for children, but also for adults that have the same 0% effective rate, like, stop being so scared. Stop worrying so much. It's like, oh, stop worrying? Oh, thanks a lot. I I haven't tried that. (laughs) Why is it that it doesn't work simply to tell a scared or worried person to just stop? It's because you haven't given them a why. You haven't answered the question that their tears or their anxiety or their fear is asking. Why should I stop being sad? Why should I stop being scared and anxious? Thankfully, the Lord Jesus deals with people much more effectively and compassionately than the examples I've given you. He's going to tell you today, fear not. He's going to say to you, don't be anxious, don't worry. And he's going to give you the why. So, do you arrive here this morning beset by fear about this life? Do you arrive here this morning beset by anxiety and worry about this life? Would you like to know the why Jesus gives to his people when he says, fear not, don't be anxious, don't worry? I hope you want to hear that because the why that Jesus gives is the best news you'll ever hear. Now let's put where we are this morning in context. We're in a big section of the Gospel of Luke that runs from the end of chapter 9 all the way into chapter 19. This is a section in which Jesus is doing almost no miracles. It's practically all teaching. And what does his teaching consist of? His teaching in this big section reveals what it means to be one of his followers. What it means to be a disciple, a Christian, a saved person, a born-again person. Those all mean the same thing. Sometimes Jesus does that in this portion of the Gospel of Luke by showing what it doesn't look like to follow him as he did with the hypocritical, man-fearing, man-pleasing Pharisees and lawyers in our text last week. Sometimes he teaches us what it means to be a genuine follower, as he will in our text this morning, by showing us what it does look like to have genuine faith. But that's what's going on in Luke chapters 9 through 19. And to put an even finer point on it, Jesus is teaching in this section of Luke's gospel what it does and doesn't look like to be, a, to be a subject, a citizen of the kingdom that Christ has come to inaugurate in his death and resurrection. Our text this morning that Alec read for us earlier flows very nicely from where we were last week when we heard Jesus teach us about not being hypocritical man-pleasers and man-fearers. What's the connection between last week and this week. It's this. 
Those who live with a fear of God will not seek to please men and will, as a result, sometimes suffer persecution. That persecution could include the loss of earthly things. And so now in our text today, Jesus is going to comfort his followers by teaching us why we don't have to be fearful or anxious or worried about material things or earthly things. Our text, chapter 12, verse 13, begins with Luke saying that someone in the crowd brings in Jesus to intervene in a family dispute. What crowd is this person in? Someone in the crowd, verse 13 says. Well, the crowd that's mentioned in verse 1 of this chapter, chapter 12, verse 1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. That's the crowd that Luke's referring to here in verse 13. These many thousands of people that are clamoring to see and hear Jesus, so many that they were trampling one another. And a man in this crowd says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now that strikes you probably as a reasonable request. It's only fair, it seems, to have brothers share in the inheritance that they stand to receive from their parents. But as you read the Bible, don't rush to your conclusions based on your own sense of what's right or fair or good. Don't forget that there's an all-knowing one who's in the scene here. It's Jesus. And he doesn't take the man's demand as straightforwardly as you might be taking it. Jesus knows what's behind the man's question. Jesus knows, and we see that based on where Jesus goes with his teaching after this, that it's greed that undergirds the man's demand of the Lord here. But Jesus has bigger fish to fry. He's not going to get into a quibble between siblings as their judge or arbiter. He has a bigger lesson that he wants to teach these men and indeed the whole crowd. And so Jesus addresses the crowd in verse 15. He says, take care. Maybe you have a translation that says something like, watch out. That's a good translation too. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For, or because, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So that's something that Jesus wants the people in this crowd and you to hear. And he makes sure we're listening. He gives us two different signals. He says, take care and be on your guard. Take care of what? Be on your guard against what? Against covetousness. Why? Because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Things are not your life. Be they tangible things, like cars and trucks and houses and jewelry, or even basic things like food and clothing and modest shelter. Not even intangible things are your life, like intelligence or attractiveness or status or education. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Your life is not greater because you have many possessions. Your life is not worse because you do not have many possessions. Jesus wants you to get that. He wants you to believe that because that's what he's teaching and saying to you right now from his word. Take care, he says. Watch out and be on your guard. 
against covetousness. That's the warning Jesus issues here in verse 15. Because your life isn't your earthly treasure. Now, to illuminate the warning that the Lord has just given the crowd, he's going to tell a story or a parable beginning in verse 16. The story goes like this. There was a rich man. He had land. The land was very fruitful, very productive. And now he's faced with a pretty enviable problem. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, it's not as though he doesn't have any barns. But the barns he has aren't near big enough for all the harvest that his land has produced. So he hatches a plan. He's going to tear down his barns and he's going to build bigger ones. And then he'll put the fruits of his land in those new and bigger barns. And he's quite satisfied with himself. He says to his soul, soul? What else would you call your soul? You don't have a name for yours, I trust. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up. For many years. He says to himself, your harvest is plentiful. And there are big and new barns to put it all in and to store it for many years. So let's put up our feet and relax and eat and drink and be merry. And this rich man has made an eternally fatal error. He has thought that if he abounds in earthly treasure, then there is nothing else to think about. And so, having come to abound in earthly treasure, he thinks he's all set. He clearly has a gear for planning ahead. He's built barns to store all that his land produces so that he can store the plentiful grain and goods for many years. But, But his planning ahead ended with this earthly life. And now that all of his best laid plans have all worked out perfectly, he thinks, again, that he's all set. And in verses 20 and 21, with his feet up, relaxing, eating, drinking, drinking and being merry, a voice from heaven, the voice of God, cries out to this man, Fool! This night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? The rich fool in Jesus' parable presumed upon his future. He thought he was in total control of his life, including how long it would last. He assumed that he'd have years to enjoy the harvest that he had put away for years, and he didn't. God asks the man a haunting question. These things you have prepared, whose will they be? The story Jesus tells doesn't give us an answer except for the only answer that matters. Whosoever they're going to be, they won't be his. They're not going to be the rich man's things. He won't take them with him where he's going. Whomever they'll belong to, they won't be his despite his planning and building to enjoy them for years and years. This rich fool didn't live with the knowledge that Job confessed to God in Job 14 when he says, man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. 
The only life this rich fool was concerned about, the only life he planned for, was this earthly life. And when it was over, at a time that God knew, but this man clearly didn't, God's word to him was, fool. Why was he a fool? There seemed to be a lot of pretty wise business principles and stewardship principles at play here. Why was he a fool? It's because his focus was on this vapor of a life, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. This, this vain mist, this passing breath of a life. Instead of his focus being on eternity, instead of his focus being on where he would dwell forever and ever and ever. And because he gave no thought to the life to come, when he entered the life after this one, he entered damnation, cast into hell by the one who told the rich man what a damned fool he had been. And in verse 21 here, Jesus gives us the moral of this story. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So too is the one. That is, the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God is a fool just like this man. And the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God will hear from God at his death just what this man did. Fool, fool, fool. So with the man's demand of Jesus in verse 13 and the resultant parable in mind, Jesus is now going to begin to address his disciples in verse 22. But he's pivoting off what he's just said. You know that because of the Lord's use of the word therefore in verse 22. With that word therefore in mind then, what Jesus is saying is because the one who focuses on being rich in this life and not being rich toward God is a fool, because of that truth, therefore don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Jesus is issuing a command here, brothers and sisters. The command is, do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about your body. Do not be anxious about what you'll eat, nor about what you'll wear. The fool is the one who's anxious about earthly things. The wise man's focus, the focus of the follower of Christ, that's what's going on in this section of Luke, is on the eternity that surely awaits after this life. So hopefully you're asking the question, why? Why, Jesus, are your people not to be anxious about things like food and clothing? He tells us why in verse 23. It's because life consists of more than food and the body more than clothing. The rich fool had food to spare. He had barns full of food and surely more than enough clothing. And he thought all was well because he thought life was not more than earthly things. The Pharisees, don't forget about those guys. They're still in the picture here. We saw from our text last week that they lived like they thought life was not more than earthly things, didn't they? What did Jesus say in our text from last Sunday that their hearts were full of? Greed and wickedness. They were greedy. 
They were desirous of more and more possessions. They were protective of their possessions. No, Jesus is saying there's more to life than food. And there's more to the body than clothing. So don't be anxious about your life, nor about your body follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he issues the command in verse 22. He grounds the command. He gives us the why in verse 23. And now in verses 24 through 26, he's going to illuminate the command not to be anxious about earthly things by having us consider ravens and lilies. He tells us, beginning in verse 24, that the ravens don't go about planting seeds. They don't systematically and thoughtfully go and plant a crop like the rich fool did. And the ravens don't reap what they've planted. They certainly don't have storehouses or barns as the rich fool thought was so important. But God provides their food, doesn't he? Jesus said. Dear ones, listen to the Savior. Of how much more value are you than the birds? The Father regards you as of infinite value compared to ravens. So Jesus is saying if he'll feed them... What will he do for you, whom he values immeasurably more than birds? And what, Jesus asks, do we gain by worrying anyway? Can the whole of your worrying add a single hour to your life? No. And if all your worrying can't add even a single hour to the life that the Lord has already measured out for you from eternity past, if all your anxiety can't add even 60 minutes to a decades-long lifespan, then what's the use of worrying? That's Jesus' point here. If your worrying can't even accomplish a small thing like adding 60 measly minutes to your life, then why are you anxious? It's fruitless, the Savior says. From ravens to lilies. Consider the lilies. The lilies don't grow the plants from which clothing is made. They neither toil nor spin, Jesus says. They don't make yarn or thread or fabric. They don't do any of that. Yet, they are arrayed in more splendor than Solomon in all his glory. 1 Kings chapter 10 says that Solomon's riches excelled all the kings of the earth. But the flowers are more magnificently adorned than he. Now, Jesus is saying in verse 28, If the Father so splendidly clothes the plants that are here today and burn tomorrow, don't you think he's going to clothe you? You can't calculate how much more the Father cares for you than he cares for lilies, O you of little faith. And so Jesus repeats his command in verse 29. Do not seek what you're to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Don't make as your all-encompassing focus what you're to eat or what you're to drink, and don't go around all worked up over these things, nervous and unsettled. Does Jesus mean to give no thought to food or drink as though to obey this command means to just sit still and trust God to bring food and drink to you? No. 
The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You're supposed to work. The ravens work for their food, even the lilies in their own way work for their food. But there isn't to be an anxiety, a nervousness, a getting worked upness about your working for food or drink. And there is to be an ever present calmness that comes from trusting that the Lord is going to use your work. The work he provides and strengthens you to do, he's going to use your work to provide your food and drink for you. And as Jesus did when he issued the first version of this command earlier in verse 22, he follows this command with the rationale, the grounding for the command, the why in verse 30. Why is it that Jesus' people should not be obsessed and anxious about their food or drink? First, he says in verse 30, it's because the Gentiles seek after those things. That's what's meant by the nations of the world. Pagan, godless people who don't worship the one true and living God. They're the ones who seek after food and drink. And they're the ones who are worried about those things. Jesus is saying, let the godless ones do that. Not you who are followers of the one who is able and willing to provide for your needs. And what's more, Jesus says in verse 30, your father knows that you need them. Christian, you couldn't be in a better position. You have an all-powerful father who knows everything that you need and loves you and cares for you. With those things in mind then, Jesus is going to give a couple of applications of the command that he's now issued twice in verse 22 and verse 29, not to worry or to be anxious about earthly things. The first application, as we see it in verses 31 and 32 here, is to seek his kingdom and find, in so doing, that all the things pertaining to your earthly life will be added to you. Instead of worrying Jesus says in verse 31, seek his kingdom, and the earthly things will be added to you. Instead of seeking food and drink, which Jesus said not to do in verse 29, that's what the pagans do. God knows what you need. Instead, you seek the kingdom. Isn't it interesting how this works itself out? If you seek the kingdom, you'll have your earthly needs met too. If... As we saw from the rich fool, you make earthly things your primary focus. You'll ultimately have neither the kingdom nor the earthly things pertaining to your daily life. I like how C.S. Lewis said it, quote, Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. And Christian, you need not worry whether seeking the kingdom instead of seeking food or drink will be a fruitful search. If you seek the kingdom, you will have it. Some of the most tender words ever found on the lips of our Savior assure of us of this in verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That bears repeating, doesn't it? Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Fear not, my followers, Jesus says. Fear not about whether the Father will take care of you. Fear not whether making heavenly things your aim will result in your missing earthly things that he knows you need. Fear not, little flock. If it has been the Father's good pleasure to grant you entrance into his kingdom, he will surely take care of you. Do you see the argument from the greater to the lesser here? What did it take for the Father to give entrance to the kingdom, to his son's little flock? What did it take for Jesus' followers to become beneficiaries of all of the wonderful kingdom promises like forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God and communion with God and the power to obey his commands and the hope of resurrection and eternal life in a restored perfect universe free from the sin, uh, free from the curse. What did it take for the Father to do according to his good pleasure here and give us the kingdom? What did it take? Well, it took something else that pleased the Father. The King James renders Isaiah 53.10 this way. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. That is, because of the Father's abundant love and mercy and grace toward his people, it was the Father's will, indeed it was the Father's pleasure, to crush his Son on the cross cursing his son in the place of his people, cursing his son for the sins of his people. Christ was sent like the scapegoat on the day of atonement outside the camp. And the sins of his people were laid on him as he suffered the Father's wrath on the cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ suffered outside the camp so that we would come into the kingdom by repentance and faith in him. And when he was resurrected, and when he had ascended into heaven, he was crowned the conquering king, and he was hailed as king of kings and lord of lords, and his kingdom had been inaugurated, even as we now wait eagerly for the kingdom to be consummated at the return of the king of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father's Son died in the place of his people, and that is how it was the Father's good pleasure to give his son's little flock the kingdom. That's how that was accomplished. And so now, dear ones, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if the Father would not hold back even his beloved Son, in whom he was well pleased, but would send him to earth to die for you, to be cursed so that you would not be cursed, but instead experience the blessings promised to Abraham, If the Father would do that, will you not trust him for every lesser thing that he knows you need? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, Paul asks to the Romans. If he will crush his son to provide what you needed most, to provide what you needed so that you would have eternal heavenly life, That Jesus is saying, brother and sister, little flock, you need not worry worry whether he will provide for you anything else that you need for this fleeting earthly life. That's what the Savior is so sweetly saying here. The second of Jesus' applications is found in verses 33 and 34. 
Since we who follow Christ don't cling tight-fistedly to our earthly possessions because we trust the Father to provide for us, and since we don't have to make our primary focus the acquiring of food and drink and clothing and the things pertaining to this life, now we're free. We're free to live generously and to give generously. We're free even, he says in verse 33, to sell our possessions so that we can give more. When Sarah and I were in college, a family in our church sold their huge, beautiful lake house. And it was not like, well, we've got four more. No. Because they concluded they could be more generous givers with the proceeds from that house. Now, don't feel like this command doesn't apply to you because you don't have a lake house to sell. (laughs) Neither did these folks. Whatever you have, Christian, be it much or little, live generously and open-handedly with it. Put your treasure, Jesus says, in a bag that goes with you to heaven, in a bag that doesn't get old and holy. Provide yourself with treasure in the heavens, a treasure that doesn't fail and that thieves and moths can't get to. And when you invest your treasure in heaven, you'll find that your heart is set on the heavenly kingdom of Christ too. If you want to know where your treasure is, look at what your heart gazes on. And if you want to know what your heart gazes on, you need only look and see where your treasure is. Is your heart set here or there. Now, as we think about how to make use of this text, I first want to address you who are not Christians. You who are here, and you haven't repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ. I'm pleading with you not to hear God say to you, fool, at the moment of your death. I'm pleading with you not to lay up treasure for yourself here on this earth, in this life, before your death, and then fail to be rich toward God. So let me work this idea with you for a little bit, non-Christian. What occupies your focus, you who are outside of Christ? Is the accumulation of more earthly possessions your focus? Is it climbing the ladder at work? Is it working feverishly to have more responsibility or a more impressive title or a larger office or a larger staff or simply a larger paycheck? Is that kind of thing your focus? Now, some of those things are legitimate places to put your attention, but not so that they eclipse putting your attention on the life to come by forsaking your sin and believing on Christ for salvation. Maybe for you, who are not Christians, the business world doesn't tempt you. Maybe what occupies your attention is the next thrill, the next vacation, the next adventure, the next party, the next event. You plan your life around those things. And that's where your focus can be found. Instead of on the life 
to come where you'll live forever and ever and ever in a place, the Bible says, of conscious torment if you die without being a Christian. And what enjoyment will your focus in this life on adventure and thrills and pleasure and events offer you then? None! Eternally, you will loathe yourself for focusing on this life and for laying up treasures here instead of being rich toward God by living as a follower of his son. What about you who are students? Is your focus on your team? Well, where you'll go to college or what you'll do for a career. There's a lot of planning for this life that can distract you when you're a high school student. It's good to plan. It's wise to plan. But how much do you think about and plan for the life to come? You plan for a life that passes like that. And you ignore eternity. And that's foolish. I'm pleading with you, please don't be found at the end having only given attention to this life. You don't know that any of your plans will come to fruition. And even if your plans work out more marvelously than you could ever have imagined, what guarantee that you ha- do you have that you'll be alive to enjoy it? And whatever time you enjoy it is going to be fleeting. Every day, countless people wake up living the last day of their lives without having any idea of it. When will your last day be? It's probably not today, but only probably. So I say to you, unbelievers, do not be a fool. Be done with your sin. Repent from your sin. Forsake your sin. Stop clinging to it. Stop preferring it over Christ. Trust in Christ. Ask him to forgive your sins and to give you a new heart and to indwell you by his spirit. Ask the Father to save you. Ask him to give you grace to repent and believe the gospel. And keep asking until he answers. I plead with you. Stop seeking to lay up treasure for yourself. Here. And instead, ask God to be merciful to you so that you will be rich toward God. And my brothers and sisters, how can we apply this sermon to our lives? First, I want to take the words right out of Jesus' mouth from verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Jesus wants us to take covetousness very seriously. He said to take care and be on your guard against it. So what is covetousness? Well, at its essence, it's wanting what we don't have. What does it look like to obey Christ's command here to take care and to be on your guard against covetousness? Well, first it looks like being content with what you have. So, brother and sister, are you content with what you have? If you're not, if you're covetous for more, Repent. Because to be covetous is to say that God has held out on you. Who's responsible for what you have? Is there anything you have that the Lord isn't ultimately responsible for? Of course not. 
So if you're discontent with what you have, or you're discontent because of what you don't have, you ultimately are discontent with the one who's responsible for what you have or don't have. And that's God. And being discontent with God is a bad idea. So to be covetous, dear ones, is to be discontent. Discontent ultimately with God. So take care and be on your guard against such a wicked idea. To be covetous is also to be disappointed when a good thing happens to your brother or sister in Christ. That either happened to you and you really weren't interested in sharing it, or that didn't happen to you. To obey Christ's command to take care and be on your guard against covetousness is to rejoice when your brother or sister rejoices, even if they are rejoicing over something you've wept over. And to do otherwise is to reflect that you think God has done you some disservice or that he hasn't given you something you deserve or that he has given you something you don't deserve. All of those bad ways of thinking is bound up in coveting and you want to war against it, Christian, with the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to repent from it by God's abundant grace because you don't want to be found being discontent toward the God who has actually been more generous to you than you even have the brain capacity to begin to comprehend. It will take eternity to rehearse his generosity toward every one of us who believe, won't it? So let's take care and be on guard against covetousness and its demonic friend, discontentment. Why? Because it's been his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Second Christian, by way of application, I want to make sure you hear the Lord Jesus say to you, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. I want to make sure you hear the Lord say to you, do not seek what you are, uh, what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. So do you need to repent this morning from sinful worry, and sinful anxiety, and sinful fear? All those things reveal that you're suffering from gospel amnesia. They reveal that you've forgotten the indescribably good promises of the gospel. Or that you're not focusing on the promises and instead have your eyes set on this life. Now remember, I know it's not good enough for me to just tell you, quit being scared, quit worrying, stop being so anxious. I know that's not the way forward. You need a why. Why, Mitch, should I not fear or worry or be anxious? That's the way forward. That's what you need to know. And Jesus has told us why in our text, hasn't he? Dear brother, dear sister, you don't have to fear. You don't have to be scared or worried or anxious because you have a Father in heaven who has promised to supply all your needs. He's all-powerful, and what's more, he's kind. He knows your needs. He can do everything, and he owns everything, and he loves you and cares for you. You know he does because he crushed his son for you and placed you in his son. So fear not, little flock. 
The Father has given you entrance into his kingdom by the death and resurrection of the king of the kingdom. Therefore, he will certainly supply you with every lesser thing. And even if he didn't give you a single earthly thing, who could bring a charge against him? If he only gave you the blessings of salvation and never provided you with another thing for this earthly life, has he done you any wrong? No, because with giving you salvation, he's still done more than you could ever thank him for. As it is, though, he gives you Christ and earthly things besides. So fear not. Rest in him. Trust in him. And have as your focus not this life, but the life to come. Wage war against sin in this area, dear Christian. I think of the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Jesus says of the seed that was sown on the third soil that fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked out the seeds. Jesus says that the ones sown among thorns are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. So Christian, wage Spirit-empowered war against the fear and worry and anxiety we're talking about today, lest at the last day you prove to have been unfaithful, unfruitful. It really is a sin to disobey Christ's commands concerning fear and worry and anxiety. But don't despair, brother and sister. There's a Savior who's died to forgive all your sins. All your sins including being sinfully fearful and worried and anxious about things pertaining to this life. And that Savior sent his Spirit to indwell you so that you have the power to repent from those sins and to grow in not going back to them like you once did. And so, may we, my fellow God-fearers, heed Christ's command to fear not about the things pertaining to this life, Why? Because it has been the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy toward us through your Son. I pray that we indeed would not focus our attention on this life, that we would not seek food and drink, that we would not be worried or anxious, or fearful, but rather that would be characterized by faith and trust. That's the only right response to a father who's been pleased to crush his son to give us entrance into his son's kingdom. Father, by your spirit, do this work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.